Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour. We've got an exciting episode here. Uh, we got, we're joined by Dr. Kevin Renard, a neurosurgeon at the Prometica Toledo Hospital. Um, Kevin's been a, a mentor of mine for a long time. We, I did a neurosurgery rotation with him in, uh, as a medical student at University of Toledo, and uh, we've, he stay, we've stayed in contact and since then have been great friends and he's been a great mentor to me. So Kevin, it's great to have you on. Uh, welcome to the show. Max, thanks for having me. Awesome. Good to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Just to give a little bit of bio. Um, so he's, like I said, he's an attending neurosurgeon at, at ProMedica in Toledo, Ohio. Um, he did his MD at Medical College of Wisconsin and then did his uh, neurosurgery residency at Henry Ford Hospital and then did a pediatric neurosurgery fellowship at Boston Children's in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. And then at the end of his training, did a, another fellowship in skull base and cerebrovascular neurosurgery at the Swedish, Swedish Neuroscience Institute, Institute in Seattle, Washington, um, before coming uh, to Toledo to, do, to work as an attending. Um, so we'll definitely get into your, your extensive training, but I guess kind of tell us about your current position. You know, you just you were just telling me how you recently became director of neurosurgery and um, I guess kind of what patient type of patients are you uh, in pathology are you seeing and what kind of practice type do you have? So, so the type of patient that we typically uh, triage here in our practice are patients who have neurologic disorders. Uh, these could be patients who have primary brain tumors, metastatic brain tumors, patients that have degenerative spine disease. We also take care of a fair number of patients that have traumatic injuries, both to the brain and the spine. Um, we take care of pediatric patients. Um, and then also cerebrovascular, which is a rather broad spectrum. And we want, we work very closely with our stroke colleagues uh, to take care of patients who have had various types of strokes. Nice. Nice. And it seems like your, your practice type, is it would you describe it as academic or private practice or maybe like a hybrid? Cause you know, you're definitely involved with the, the medical school. Um, but I think it seems like Prometica is more of kind of like the health system than necessarily like an academic center. I guess, how would you describe your practice type? So I have uh, the privilege of working with a medical school and uh, the medical students. Uh, I would characterize my practice as being more of a hybrid model. So the vast majority of my work is clinical work. But uh, because we have wonderful medical students like yourself on the service, uh, we have uh, the capabilities of doing research, uh, primarily clinical research, although there are residents and uh, resident scientists who are MD-PhD program uh, uh, students who uh, actually do clinical research, uh, or excuse me, bench work research. Uh, and, uh, you know, we try to... Um, you know, provide the patients, uh, or excuse me, the, uh, the students with a platform to do research and help them in any way possible. So it's more of a private model, but I'd say, uh, it, you know, my main focus is clinical. 
No, that's cool. You kind of, you know, like you say, you primarily do clinical work, but then you get a little bit of academics in there as well. That's, I think that's a nice mix. So I guess, you know, you obviously will do things on the inpatient and outpatient side, I guess. What does your typical like inpatient day look like or your surgery day look like, you know, when you're going to the hot, I guess, a non outpatient clinic day. um, And I guess, do you run like a primary service or are you more of a consult service or maybe a mix of both? So basically uh, I, I have my weekly schedule divided into the clinic days and the operative days. So Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, I tend to operate. I usually do anywhere between three to five cases per day, depending on the complexity of the case. Some of the more complex cases take more time, obviously. So, you know, those days there are fewer cases. Then Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm in the clinic. So I see outpatients, new patients. These are patients that are referred to our clinic through uh, the different specialties, be it the primary care doctors or whoever it is. And uh, that's also when I uh, see my patients and interact with them after their surgery. So that's kind of a, uh, a rewarding experience to see how your patients have fared. So they come back to the clinic and give us uh, a report card. And uh, intermixed with this um, schedule is the uh, trauma coverage. So in the background of all this happening, there's also a trauma call coverage. And so I I take a fair number of calls. And uh, that means that I'm responsible for taking care of any of the emergent patients that come through any of the uh, ProMedica urgent cares or ERs. And uh, ProMedica Toledo Hospital being the main hub, all these patients that go to the satellite campuses tend to triage, or excuse me, they get funneled into the main campus. And so, uh, you know, there are days when I could be rounding on the inpatient census, seeing patients in the hospital, but then triage patients from one of the ancillary hospitals and, uh, uh, you know, provide care that way. And the same goes uh, when I'm in the patient and the, uh, in the clinic seeing patients. So, uh, you know, it's a, sometimes it could be a crazy uh, world. You have to multitask, you have to be able to compartmentalize and go from a patient who may be stable and there for a post-operative visit to take a call from the operator about a patient who has had a stroke, who's being transferred via flight uh, to then talk to a primary care physician who wants to send you an urgent consult and you know the cycle continues. I think you know, that's what <clears throat> must make neurosurgery so exciting is the, all the different um, variety of, of patient types and, and I guess the variety of urgency, like you said, whether it's, you know, a stable post-op or, you know, a new stroke. And I, I think it's important to point out that your hospital is, is a tertiary, like you said, tertiary referral center, and then it's, it's a level one trauma center as well. So you probably see a number of different, you know, both high and lo- low impact trauma as well. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, given that it's a level one trauma center in this region, there's a lot of patients with various pathologies um, who get transferred over here. And so one of the advantages of being a trauma surgeon, uh, a neurosurgeon uh, taking trauma call is that you have to be prepared uh, anytime during a 24 hour period to take care of any pathology that comes in, provided that you're comfortable and you have the skills to take care of that. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, very, uh, exciting. It's, uh, you know, it's an adrenaline rush, uh, but at the same time, it could be kind of disruptive, right? Because it may disrupt your, your, your lifestyle, you know, it may interfere with raising a kid, 
You may not be able to go and walk your dog when the dog is you walking uh, it, uh, it, it, you know, it affects your uh, social network. So I think one of the, the greatest skills that a neurosurgeon and, and really any surgeon uh, who works as a, a, at a trauma center um, uh, must have is the ability to uh, juggle all these different tasks, right? And sort of right. maintain some level of sanity. <laughs> that's, uh, I think that's the biggest challenge, but you know, I enjoy it and that's why I'm here. And that's why I, I love to take call. Um, I always tell the uh, younger residents or, or the junior attendings that taking call is, is not only just a great responsibility, uh, but it's also great on an individual basis because uh, it, it forces me to, you know, maintain a broad skill set, right? I got to be sharp and, and ready to respond to a number of different pathologies um, quickly, be able to right. think on the spot uh, and, and make a decision as to whether or not that patient needs to have surgery, uh, that patient needs to be transferred to a higher level of acuity, or, um, you know, if there's nothing to be done. Right. So, and uh, when you consider that uh, there, there are so many different things that could happen, I mean, just think of how complex the brain and the spinal cord, uh, the anatomy is, um, you know, people can get shot, people can have strokes, people can have tumors, people can have various types of fractures, uh, they can have uh, all kinds of stuff. It, it forces you, taking call forces you to read up on things, to keep up with the literature, and uh, always stay relevant. Otherwise, uh, you won't be able to take care of all these uh, problems. Right, right. Um, I guess one thing for most neurosurgeons out there, what's the split between brain, like cranial surgery or brain surgery and spinal surgery? So it really depends on the type of practice. I would say that if you're a uh, surgeon working at a private demic place, like where I work, uh, I think the mix is about 80% spine and 20% cranial. Um, but there are institutions, uh, highly reputable institutions, where there are senior attendings who are subspecialized, trained in one very specific area, who uh, then only will see certain types of pathologies. So there are places where the attendings are, for example, doing 100% cranial procedures, or the split is 90-10 uh, you know, cranial spine, but also keep in mind that overall, there aren't that many cranial cases relative to other conditions. Mm -hmm. So even those attendings that are at centers of uh, excellence or quaternary centers of uh, referrals, um, they're not doing high volume cranial cases. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have very rewarding practices. It just means that, you know, they're, they're primarily dealing with 100 or 120 complex cranial cases. Now, keep in mind, a lot of those complex cranial cases not only take a lot of uh, studying and workup and planning um, to get to the operating room, but then also they're extensively complex and uh, both physically and mentally taxing. So some of these operations can be 12, 14 hours long. So you could see how if, if, if you're at that level, um, doing 150 of those cases in a year is a, is a, is a monumental task. Uh, sure. And then, and then there, there are certain neurosurgeons who, uh, you know, pick and choose. There are surgeons that don't want to necessarily do certain things. So there are certain neurosurgeons that would gravitate toward a niche. They're more interested in taking care of spine patients, but even within that spine universe, they, for example, would prefer to take care of cervical pathology more so than lumbar pathology. Mm -hmm. Right. So 
that's that's the beauty of this field is that there are really opportunities to uh, tailor a practice towards whatever your desires are. Um, but then, you know, there's always some geographical, um, you know, sort of constraints. You know, I mean, there, there are certain places that are major metropolises. So, uh, you know, trauma tends to be, tends to be the, 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 the breadwinner, you know, like, for example, if you're a neurosurgeon practicing in Baltimore, you're going to see a lot of trauma cases. If you're a neurosurgeon somewhere, um, that's not as, 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 as a big of a metropolis, you might see more degenerative spine. So, uh, you know, really, uh, it, it, the, the, the practices out there could be, uh, you know, pretty variable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a point thing to point out with the subspecialization, I think, you know, as you know, at, at Emory here, it's, um, you know, big academic place. Um, and I can attest to what you're saying, you know, the, there's, you know, the, I know there's one very prominent neurosurgeon here who only does cerebrovascular as you, as you know, and he does mainly aneurysm cases. There's another one who does mainly skull base. He does like runs the pituitary center here. Um, there's others, like you said, that only do pretty much exclusively spine work. Maybe they cover some cranial things on call. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's also what's so fascinating about neurosurgeries. It's, you know, you guys do so many different types of cases and different types of operations um, that you can really focus in on one area or, or certain areas, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, I guess, what are you, for you, what are the most common types of procedures you perform? And I guess, which are, which ones are your favorites to do? Um, you know, again, it really depends on the, on the season here in Toledo. Uh, <laughs> if it's, if it's uh, trauma season, uh, summer months uh, with all the kids, on their uh, bikes strolling around, um, I would potentially do more uh, trauma cases, right? And, uh, you know, I'd say in those uh, busy trauma seasons, it could be a 50-50 mix where I'm taking care of a lot of cranial trauma. These are skull fractures, uh, intracerebral hemorrhages, uh, and so forth, but then also have a fair number of uh, uh, traumatic spine fractures. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I tend to do a fair number of cranial cases and it's mainly not, not so much my, my training and my, uh, my, my fellowship background, but it's more um, that after, you know, being in a practice and doing certain cases, you sort of develop a reputation. And so the cases get naturally uh, referred to you. Sure, right? sure. So even if I'm not on call, for example, I may get one or two cranial cases referred to me. Uh, so, you know, there's always a healthy mix of trauma. There's always a healthy mix of cranial cases, but I would say, uh, I, I, I certainly do more spine cases than I do cranial cases. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, as far as what tickles my fancy more and what makes me uh, more excited, certainly the cranial cases, you know, the complex aneurysms, the complex skull base cases are, uh, much more exciting. I mean, there's a, there's a certain adrenaline rush that comes with, you know, doing a, a big acoustic neuroma where you have to preserve so many of the cranial nerve functions and, and you're working in such a tight, eloquent space. Mm -hmm. Not saying that spine surgery is not eloquent. I think all of neurosurgery is. I think, you know, all the specialties really, you have to be really good because you're taking care of an individual and what we do could significantly impact someone's quality of life. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, cranial cases are definitely special. Uh, no questions asked. Um, you know, in fact, I think I've got a, my dog is saying hi. Um, I got a case, uh, on the 30th that, uh, you know, I'm reading up on and preparing for and, and, uh, and so that's, that's certainly going to be exciting. That's awesome. Um, 
And, uh, you know, in the spine world, you know, spine fractures tend to be uh, uh, rewarding cases. You know, these are typically cases in younger individuals that, you know, suffer a car accident or, or a motorcycle accident who are perfectly normal, um, highly functioning, independent before, suffer a traumatic fracture. And then you have the capacity as a neurosurgeon or as a spine surgeon to put them back together and then send them out back, you know, send them back out to life. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle, right? So you, right. you put their spine back together and then you see them back in six weeks and you see that the person is uh, recovered and, and doing well. So uh, really, I think as a whole, the entire specialty is, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, really rewarding. Um, but if you ask me, what is the one case, what's the last case that I want to do as I sail into the sunset, it would probably be, uh, you know, either a complex tumor case or a, uh, or an aneurysm case. That's, that's really cool. That's awesome. Um, I guess, you know, you've been talking a lot about, uh, the call and everything, I guess, what, what is your, like, how many, if you're on call, like how many typical days in a week are you on call? Is that typical for most I think when people get interested in neurosurgery, they think, well, how, you know, am I just on call all the time or, you know, what's like, how many weekends are you on call in a month? And I guess, is that typical? It probably is very, I would imagine probably so very variable. It is. Yeah, it is. It is very fair. And, you know, it is one of the uh, most important topics that comes up uh, in the interview process um, and, and really both sides. So show equal interest, you know, the, the, uh, the applicant is obviously interested in knowing what kind of a life they're getting themselves into. And then the people who are part of the practice want to know if they can potentially offload some call and, you know, what type of a partner they're onboarding. I was uh, very frank upfront when I joined the practice that I enjoy, again, taking a call, just like we've talked about. I enjoy being, um, you know, on the spot in the trenches in the ER and, and, and be asked to solve a problem quickly on my mm -hmm. toes. So, uh, since 2016, when, uh, you know, I started here, I've been taking the, the, the bulk of the call. I mean, I take anywhere between 10 to 14, sometimes even 15 days of call a month. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the math is not necessarily uh, simple. It's not, I can't really tell you if I take two calls a week or four calls a week, it really depends on my partners. You know, some of my partners are senior and they have you know, other obligations or commitments. Um, and so, uh, you know, I could have stretches where, you know, I'm on call six, seven, eight days in a row. Um, if for example, one of my partners is on vacation or at a conference, uh, at the double ANS, um, or I could take, uh, you know, three calls a week, you know, get a weekend off and then do a four day stretch and so forth. But, uh, you know, we're, we, uh, I'm part of a fairly large practice. And so, uh, you know, we make it work, you know, we basically know, that there's 30 days to 31 days a month that needs call coverage. And, you know, we, we divvy it up along our uh, interests lines and, and, and time obligations, family obligations, and somehow every month it works. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. I imagine being, having good partners is probably the key to that. Uh, and probably having a good number of partners as well. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I mean, having partners that are committed to your success is, uh, really the most important part um, of, of this whole uh, process. Um, you know, a lot of times it's easy for the applicants to get distracted by the location of the practice. Certainly that's important. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the most important uh, piece of the puzzle. 
Uh, it's easy to get distracted by the, uh, the finances involved, how much you're getting paid, uh, what the compensation package is for trauma call coverage, for example, what the benefits are. And I'm not naive to deny that those aren't important. They're very important. But I'd, I'd, I'd argue that having partners that are truly your, your uh, partners, people who will vouch for you, people who will protect you, um, people who will um, uh, ensure that they do everything possible that you succeed, I think that is uh, of the utmost importance. That's not something that money can buy. And, uh, and I think if you um, talk to some of the other uh, physicians that you're going to interview um, and, and, and just simply look at some of the, the statistics out there around the country, the, the number or the percentage of physicians who change their practice after two to three years uh, is, is a significant number. It's not a low number. That's and so a fair number of physicians join. And then, uh, you know, the first year, you know, they're just getting... Uh, their head wrapped around what's going on, then they get settled in. And then as soon as they start doing some serious cases, that's when they start to realize that, you know, maybe these partners weren't what I thought they were. Mm -hmm. And then that's when you start competing. You know, the senior guys may potentially get a little ruffled that the junior guy is taking cases away from them. You know, all physicians have egos. Uh, and so that's when you really start to start to see the, uh, the, the lines and the friendships crack. And that's why people leave. Right? Mm -hmm. It's not all about poor compensation. It's not because certain locations are flatter than the others. And, you know, Georgia has uh, more trees than, you know, uh, Ohio or something like that. It's, yeah. it's really the bond that you form with the partners that you have because, mm -hmm. it, you know, you succeed and you fail as a group. Right. Right. That makes sense. I mean, it's like a team, essentially. Um, exactly that makes sense yeah. i guess rewinding back a little bit and i feel like you've alluded to this already but when you were a medical student um i guess what what drew you to neurosurgery what made you go into neurosurgery versus other subspecialty or other specialties were you always going to do neurosurgery or, or was it something you kind of a decision you came to over time well i think it's a decision that crystallized over time you know i think every experience that i've had and all the critical junctions uh, and you know junctures of my life led to this. Um, but I knew early on that I was very hands-on. I, I, you know, I was a kid that burned the house down, destroyed my dad's car, you know, took apart the radio and didn't know how to put it back together. So I was always doing something with my hands. So, you know, I knew that I'm going to be um, uh, a person who's going to be working a lot with my hands. And then I was also deeply impacted by my dad's best friend at the time who happened to be a neurosurgeon. So I was, I was around somebody who talked about the brain anatomy and I could see him, you know, get uh, calls in the middle of uh, a conversation or at dinner time and, and, and rush to go to the hospital to do an emergency. And I was kind of enthralled by that. Mm -hmm. and, and so it was always something in the back of my mind. And, uh, and that's how sort of the decision to become a physician um, what was formed, you know, and it's, you know, obviously it's a noble profession. Um, right, you know, right. I, 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 both my parents are teachers and they care for people. And so, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something that enables me to take care of people. And, um, you know, medicine, I think is a perfect example of that. You can care for people, you can use your hands, you can use your intellect. And, and so that's kind of what led me to medical school. And then once I got to medical school, I was always, 
gravitating towards neurosurgery simply because of my background with this neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. But then I, I, I embarked on this uh, sort of journey of trying to really find out for myself firsthand what specialty is going to, uh, um, you know, check all the boxes for me and, 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 and keep me happy and fulfilled, right? Mm-hmm. So I started, you know, I think the first week when I was a medical student, I made an appointment and I, I met the chairman of neurosurgery. I, I, I uh, you know, talked to the cardiovascular fellow and uh, I was always thinking a little bit ahead, planning, you know, rotations and internships and, you know, after uh, school uh, rotations and whatnot. Um, and then when I started reading about, you know, the human physiology and human anatomy, the, the brain and, and neuroanatomy was always, well, not only was it the most difficult and, and, and complex, but it was always the most interesting, mm-hmm. not not to take away from the rest of the human anatomy because everything is, is, is fascinating. But, you know, there was just something special about the neurons and this network of these cells coming together and forming these connections that make you who you are, make me who I am. And, mm-hmm. and to have the capacity to sort of modulate these neurons and, you know, weave our way in and out of, of, of the brain and take out, you know, a cancerous lesion or something like that was, was just awesome. <clears throat> so I, 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 you know, I said, you know, this is perhaps something that I should pursue. And then, you know, as you know, in medical school, there's ways to shadow neurosurgeons. I started doing some neurosurgery cases. I did some cardiac cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I realized that uh, you know, neurosurgery is probably uh, the way for me. Sure, sure. Yeah, because I think I remember in our previous conversations, you were also considering either like cardio, like maybe interventional cardiology or cardiothoracic surgery um yeah as well and it seems like maybe your interest in neuroscience is kind of what pushed you maybe away from i think the interest in neuroscience and always um you know this relationship that i had formed with my dad's father was was a was a driving force mm-hmm. you know, somehow you know if i closed my eyes and 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 just had a conversation with my myself and said well what would i really want to do because mm-hmm. you know really all of medicine is rewarding i mean you know doing interventional cardiology or cardiac surgery, you're helping people, you're, you know, in a highly respected profession. I mean, it's, it's all beautiful, sure. but, I, but at a, at a very deep personal level, I, I asked myself, I said, what would I, you know, like to do that would really make me happy. And, and, you know, maybe part of it was just because I wanted to be cool, like that neurosurgeon, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, um, you know, as a kid, you're very impressionable, right. And there's always right. heroes and, 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 and uh, people that, you're enamored by, and I was just enamored by this fellow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, you know, why not? Let's give it a sh- give it a shot and see if I can uh, if I can become like him. No, I th- I think you've certainly achieved that or come close or on your way there. Because I mean, every time I talk to you, it's you know I I know you made the right choice. I mean, you just you just love neurosurgery. Every time I talk, yeah, to you, it's, it's uh, very obvious that it's it's your passion. And and uh, I think it, for it's such a it's a beautiful field, but it's so demanding that I feel like, and tell me if you disagree, obviously, but you have to be that way. You can't be like, just kind of like it or kind of think it's cool. Like it's, you've really got to be very like, you know, passionate about it. It's got to really stimulate, stimulate you more than anything else. I feel like to really, to, to well, certainly it's a, it's a challenging, um, field from a number of different standpoints. One, um, it's very delicate and, uh, the slightest bit of error, you know, mistake, deviation from the standard or the norm can cause some catastrophic complications. Mm-hmm. 
um, again, not to diminish other specialties, but, you know, when you're working to try to remove a spinal cord tumor, you know, the, the, the heat that the tip of the bipolar is generating, um, you know, how you're handling the tissue, your understanding of the very intricate anatomy, every little bit matters. The difference could be somebody recovering well from that surgery and being able to walk versus recovering so-so and not being able to walk, mm -hmm. right? So there's always that stress. So when you're doing that case, you're constantly thinking, you know, what, what, is, what, what could potentially happen uh, if, I, if I make a mistake, right? So there's, there's huge amounts of pressure. Just, you know, imagine you're a race car driver, mm -hmm. you know, driving at 200 miles an hour, and you always know or are thinking that at any moment you can crash and die. Right. Right. So, so you always have that stress. Um, you know, the hours are long, you know, on average, most of the neurosurgical cases are two to four hours long. And if you're doing two or three cases a day, you know, the days could stretch well over 12 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're doing complex cranial or spinal cases, uh, complex aneurysm, complex deformity surgery, these are very, very mentally and, and physically taxing. So, um, Yes, you have to love it. I would, I would, I would tell all medical students to you know pick something that you're truly passionate about, um, because if you are really passionate about something, then the hard hours, the long hours, the complexity of the cases, the challenges aren't going to uh, dissuade you, right? You're you're sure. just gonna convince yourself that it's you know it's part of the process. You know you're there. Um, because you have to be there because you're responsible and it comes with the territory. And so you solve the problem and you move on mm -hmm. the best you can. Right. So, right. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I could say that about a whole lot of other specialties, right. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, doing interventional, um, neurology, right. Uh, clipping an aneurysm or coiling an aneurysm, you know, late mm -hmm. in the night, you're tired, you're on call, you might be on your third case. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great responsibility. Absolutely. I guess I'm curious, you know, like you said, there's, you know, obviously neurosurgery is at the, at the top of the list, but there's a number of fields that deal with, you know, high stress situations, you know, you're dealing with, you know, people that are acutely ill or acute problems, I guess, what's your, like, is that something that your ability to handle that? Is that something that just comes with experience in your opinion, or is that, are there like certain things people can do to alleviate that, you know, maybe sense of stress you would have or, or keep the calm in the storm, if you will? <laughs> well, I think it's, um, it, it depends. I mean, you, you know that there are certain people who just handle stress better than others. Mm -hmm. And um, it doesn't, that, that's not necessarily, you know, in the adult years, this could be, you know, back in, in, in kindergarten, right? You probably had a kindergarten mate who just didn't handle stress as well as the next person, mm -hmm. right? Um, but certainly coping with stress and coping with these difficult situations is something that you get better at as you face more challenges, as you go through your career and handle more and more complex cases, as you navigate your way through complications, which by the way, everybody will have, mm -hmm. and, uh, you, uh, develop coping mechanisms, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that's part of the maturity and that's part of the learning process. And, you know, I continue to learn and mature every day. Um, I certainly am a better surgeon now than I was six years ago. I certainly have more patience and understanding uh, of the field as a whole than I did six years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it, it's something that I think that everyone should work on. You know, I, you know, we, we, everybody, no matter what your specialty is, you know, you have to remind yourself that at the end of the day, as a physician, you're taking care of a human life. 
and uh, you know it's going to require the best of you. You know, mm-hmm. you 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 oftentimes see these athletes who are uh, you know world class. You know, I was watching a a, a video of uh, you know Usain Bolt, you know, breaking the world record. You know, right before that gun goes off, and you look in his face. I mean, that man is focused. You know, every cell in his body is 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 focused, has been trained, and is just ready to launch, right? And so, you know, we have to, as physicians, we have to approach every patient like that, right? Every challenge is is a hundred yard dash. You have to be focused. You 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 gotta make sure that. Uh, you, you develop the skill set and the coping mechanisms to be able to compartmentalize, you know, personal issues, stress, whatever it may be, because you have to be ready to deal with the problem, right? Mm-hmm. You have to, um, you, you have to solve the problem and take care of that person. And, and, you know, again, I, I'm not a perfect person. Uh, it's something that you learn. And that's why, you know, that's why neurosurgical residency, seven years, that's why, you know, the practice of neurosurgery, it's called a practice. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why uh, almost anyone that you speak to in neurosurgery or in interventional radiology will tell you that the first four or five years out of training are the years that you learn the most about yourself mm-hmm. and the profession. And then years five and beyond, you continue to just hone your skill set. You get better and better and better at the craft. Right. Right. So it's not an unattainable skill, mm-hmm. even if you are a person who may have some anxiety, even if you're somebody who may have not dealt well with stress before. It's something that you can hone. It's something that you can improve upon. Mm-hmm. It's something that you can teach yourself. And, you know, the best way to do it is to find a mentor or someone who does what you do like, mm-hmm. you know, at your institution. There are some phenomenal neurosurgeons, you know, you, you, you follow them and see how those people who have been in those positions have dealt with stress so well for so many years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, stress as you, as your skill set increases and your confidence builds, certainly the stress goes down. There's an inverse relationship between the level of stress and your, your skill set, right? Anyone. I was stressed out the first time I was in attending on my own and I was asked to take care of a level one trauma center because I thought the world is going to cave. Right. <laughs> right? Um, right. Right. So, but, but those jitters go away, mm-hmm. right? You gain more confidence. You, you, uh, and, and you, you know, you, you become more efficient and so it, it, it takes, it takes time. That's why the young surgeons or the young physicians out there, they have to not only learn the, um, the basics of medicine, not only do they have to know about the guidelines, but they have to work on, uh, improving themselves. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to be physically fit. You have to be intellectually fit. You have to work on your patients. You have to work on your communication skills, everything as a whole, you have to continue to improve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess kind of going off that, maybe, you know, obviously, the, you know, we could dedicate an entire pack podcast to this, but I guess maybe talk a little bit about your experience as a neurosurgery resident, like how maybe kind of how those seven years, like what, like how they're divided up, you know, is it, you know, in the beginning, you're kind of honing your clinical skills in the sense, and then you graduate to the level of where you're honing your operative skills. And then maybe at the end, you know, probably running a service, running a team, those types of things, you know, is it, I guess, is that how you would describe it or? Yeah. So I'm going to send a shout out to uh, the guys at Ford because uh, I would consider, you know, the Henry Ford residency program, a top-notch program, certainly mm-hmm. I'm biased. I went there because I love the program. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'll tell you a funny story as a side note. So you laugh, but <laughs> I, I, I went and rotated with a program director at Henry Ford hospital for a month. And uh, at the end of my rotation, I made sure that I scheduled a clinic day with the uh, program director. Mm-hmm. And after the day was over, I thought I'd done an excellent job. And the attending patted me on my, my back and said, Kevin, you've done very well. Didn't realize that, that was my last day. So I approached him and said, you know, Dr. Rock, uh, today is my last day, and uh, I appreciate you allowing me to, uh, you know, rotate at your program. He just looked at me like, "Who are you?" <laughs> uh, but, but I, I, I love the program. It, it, you know, I am who I am because of that program. Uh, so we can talk about that about selecting the program that fits your character. Mm-hmm. But as uh, as a, as a general rule, all the neurosurgery programs in the country. Um, that are sanctioned by the ACGME um, have a very regimented uh, curriculum, mm-hmm. right? So almost all neurosurgery residency programs are seven years. I believe there might be a few still that are six years uh, in, in length. I'm not certain about that, mm-hmm. um, but let's just focus on my program, which was a seven year program. And uh, my first year uh, was my intern year. When I was a residence, uh, resident, the, my first year was actually a general surgery internship. So I was technically a general surgery intern, Mm -hmm. but that has changed, right? So as of, I think a couple of years ago, when a resident applicant becomes a member of a neurosurgery department, they will do a seven-year neurosurgery training. uh, And their first year, they're considered a neurosurgery intern, Mm -hmm. like you are a radiology intern. Right. Um, And so then during that first year, I had a number of different clinical rotations through various specialties. Right. So I did my general surgery rotation. I uh, rotated through plastic surgery. I did my surgical intensive care unit. I rotated through um, uh, the trauma service and so forth. Really specialties that uh, will uh, cross paths with neurosurgery later on. Mm-hmm. Right. And then my second year, I was considered a neurosurgery intern or the junior neurosurgery resident. And I was paired with three other residents. So there were four residents in a pool call in a, in a pool of call. And what we did is basically for the entire year, we were on call one uh, every four days at Q4, mm-hmm. right? So, and in that pool were two second year residents and two fourth year residents who were considered more senior residents. And our job was basically to take call the day that we were call, on call. And that would basically consist of uh, rounding on the patients, taking care of all the consults that came in and staying in the hospital for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. This was before the duty hour restrictions. Sure. Um, but that was basically the, uh, the, the job of the, uh, the junior resident. Now on the days that we were not on call, we would spend our entire day in the operating room and the assignment was made by the chief resident. So the chief resident would say, as a second year resident, you would help Dr. X in you know, that room uh, performing a lumbar decompression or taking out a brain tumor, mm-hmm. okay? And, and obviously the senior or the chief resident would have a very good understanding of where you are surgically on the, uh, you know, the skill spectrum mm-hmm. and would place you in rooms that would help you uh, and your skill set. You know, so as, as a second year resident, you most likely would not be placed in a room where an attending was clipping an aneurysm, 
because mm-hmm. that would just be too complex for you. You wouldn't really get anything out of it. Right. right? right. And then um, during the second year, there were also didactics. So on Wednesdays, we would have conferences. We would attend conferences with the radiologists, the, uh, the interventional radiologists, and so forth. Uh, we would get a series of lectures. Um, and basically, that was that year. My third year was a research year, which this research year could vary between program to program. So there are certain programs where the research year is year five um, and, and so forth. So the third year I primarily spent doing clinical research and doing elective rotations. Okay. And those elective rotations, they're not really elective. You have some leeway, but really they're meant to be rotations that um, would help me as a neurosurgeon later on. So mm-hmm. I did rotations in neurology, for example, I rotated through the uh, epilepsy monitoring unit. I had a rotation in the neural ICU uh, and so forth. So really just electives, but with with a focus on the neurosciences. Then the fourth year, I returned to the neurosurgical uh, service as a senior resident now. So I was in 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 a pool taking call with three other residents. And now we, uh, my, my co-resident and I had two second year residents with us, mm-hmm. right? And so by then, by the fourth year, of course, my surgical skills had advanced, I would hope. And so I was doing more complex cases, right? So instead of doing a lumbar decompression, for example, I was participating in uh, doing a lumbar decompression and uh, a fusion, mm-hmm. right? Or, or, or perhaps doing a, a hematoma evacuation or take out a tumor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Fifth year was another dedicated uh, research year where I spent, I'd say, nine months doing clinical research uh, with with, uh, sort of publication requirements. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the year, I would have to meet certain requirements. And then for three months, I I had the opportunity to do clinical infolded fellowships. I did my fellowship at, uh, you know, at Children's Hospital in Boston, and I also did a rotation at uh, University of Virginia in Charlottesville, where I did some endoscopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, then as the six-year resident, uh, I, I was a chief resident at one of the uh, um, uh, ancillary hospitals. So it was a smaller tiered hospital. It was a sort of a community hospital, but still a hospital where a fairly significant number of cases were conducted. So about a thousand cases. Oh, wow. And uh, I was basically the senior resident on that service with a junior resident. And so I would chair pick the cases and I was in charge of doing, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the day-to-day schedule for, you know, rounds. Um, and, and uh, I, I spent a significant amount of time doing uh, clinic with uh, the attendings, mm-hmm. which is, which is really, which was the first time that I was in the clinic interacting very intimately with attendings. Mm-hmm. as opposed to just rounding with them on the service. And then uh, as a seventh year resident, then I returned to the main campus as the chief resident. Uh, and in that capacity, I was doing obviously the most complex cases. Mm-hmm. So I was in, in, in charge of uh, making a schedule. I was in charge of making the call schedule for all the junior residents. I was in charge of making assignments uh, for all the junior residents. So every day, I would know, for example, that there are 10 or 12 surgical cases, and I would have to ensure that those 12 cases are covered mm-hmm. so that the, the residents are uh, assigned cases based on their skill set, 
and the nurse practitioners are placed where they're supposed to be, the PAs are, are where they're supposed to be, and just to make sure that the, you know, the patients come into the hospital, get the procedures that they need, and then are discharged appropriately. I was also in charge of uh, uh, you know, disciplining residents. Uh, I would have to run the morbidity and mortality complex. So that was kind of the year where you, know, you, you saw a, a, a steep uh, growth. Right, you know, both right. uh, personally and, and on, on, a, on a sort of a clinical skill. Um, mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, and then um, the second half of my uh, chief year, um, basically, you know, I was preparing for fellowships, you know, making sure I do the cases that would help me uh, in the fellowship, you know, carry over. So, you know, as a chief resident, again, you have the opportunity to cherry pick cases. So if you're at that point, you've, you've signed on to go do a spine fellowship. You probably would spend more time doing complex spine cases. Or conversely, you could say that, listen, I'm going to be doing a year's worth of uh, complex spinal cases in, 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 a, in a fellowship. So why don't I focus on doing things that I potentially would never do again? Sure. So let me go learn to do some complex aneurysms. Let me go learn how to do some complex functional cases um, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then obviously after my, uh, my residency, I went on to the fellowship, which is, uh, you know, a whole, a whole different category onto itself. And, uh, then after that, I, I came to Toledo. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, I think that's an excellent breakdown or kind of a, a good overview of the different, different years. I imagine there's a lot of in seven years time, there's a lot of growth that happens. It sounds like <laughs> I can even oh, yeah. see that. I can even see that after one year and a couple months of, of residency, <laughs> there's a lot of growth that occurs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's incredible. It's not just, there's so much to learn. It's not just what, uh, data you find in, in a journal or, you know, uh, the specifics of, uh, anatomy or cerebrovascular anatomy. It's really being able to put it all together, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, it's to increase your fund of knowledge and be able to apply that clinical knowledge in the operating room. It's to be able to, you know, improve your hand-eye coordination, learn how to handle tissue, learn how to, um, you know, be minimally destructive, um, cause as, as, as few of complications as possible, be efficient, be fast, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, work on your physical stamina, you know, as a chief resident, we were oftentimes, you know, working 16, 17 hours a day. Right. Um, right. right. So it's probably the hardest year that I've ever worked. So you're preparing yourself for later on when you take call mm-hmm. at a level one trauma center. So, you know, it's really just putting it all together. It's not just, you know, one uh, dimensional learning of, you know, neuroscience and neuroanatomy and so forth. It's, it's, it's a multifaceted, very complicated um, program. And then also socially, you know, that's, I probably learned in, in residency more than any other time in my life, how to communicate with people. Sure. You're communicating. You have to learn to communicate with people who are from different backgrounds. You have to learn to uh, become teammates and, and uh, members of a, of a very large diverse community. Mm-hmm. You have to, uh, you know, learn to put aside your personal feelings and emotions about certain individuals and uh, you know, you know, even attendings and, and, and learn to respect them. Um, you know, when, even if you're fatigued, even if you think you're being wrong, even if you think that the attending doesn't love you, even if you uh, think that you should have um, been given, uh, you know, more slack, 
you still have to show up and perform. You have to respect your attendings, uh, respect the patients. You know, so I think there is a lot of growth in that uh, communication and interpersonal skill uh, arena as well. So it's not just, you know, neuroanatomy and learning all the different tracks and, and being able to suture. It's really becoming a man. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's what, and that's why I, I, I truly, to this day, I consider the, uh, the attendings that train me, um, you know, like father figures. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I've even seen that in my, my short period of commute. It's unbelievable the amount of, you know, phone calls you make, the amount of different types, like you said, different types of doctors, different types of patients, um, you know, different, you know, at one point, every type of person has to come to the hospital, whether they're a billionaire or, you know, someone living on the street or anywhere in between. Um, and I guess learning to talk to people from all walks of life, it's one of the, I think, more beautiful things of medicine, but it's also, I think a challenge, like you said, in itself is, is um, exactly. And it's, and it's a skill set that's not really focused on because mm-hmm. it's taken for granted. People think that just because you were born in the States, just because you speak the native language of English, that, you know, being able to connect with an individual at their deepest, darkest, most vulnerable moment in their life is just a given that it's going to happen. Right. It's not mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So to be able to communicate with somebody and deliver a message while telling them of something that is very, very complex. Like for example, you know, you have to be able to walk into a patient's room and tell them that you're going to coil an aneurysm in their mesenteric artery or something like that. Right. 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 And, and the person who's on the receiving end of this could be a person who has six grades of education. Right. 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 You know, they may look at you as this venerable doctor and, you know, uh, this, this highly intellectual character, but they may not, they may not understand you. They may not understand what a mesenteric artery is, you know? So in in residency, I learned to be an artist Mm -hmm. because I would have to communicate with patients, um, by drawing them figures, right. There were, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a very high, uh, population of, of, of Arab speaking, uh, patients in Detroit, right. Mm -hmm. I don't speak Arabic. Sure. So, you know, patients would come in with skull fractures and brain tumors and, 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 and whatever. And you had to communicate with these people. So I learned to draw pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned to draw the brain. I learned to draw the spine. I learned to draw um, uh, surgical approaches to explain to somebody that, you know, we're about to embark on surgery. You need to have surgery, you know, and, and yes, now it's much easier because now people have these portable um, translators, you know, on the iPhones and, sure. and so forth. But, but you know, a lot of times, and you've experienced this before, right? You have this odd translator that is in between you and the patient, and it really interferes with the way you're communicating. So you really, you know, I, I can't stress this enough, how you deliver a message, how you connect with that individual mm-hmm. is, is really the, is, is the differentiator. It's, it's, it's what will set you as the physician apart from the next person. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, once you get your degree and you, you have your training and you become board certified, most surgeons can perform the task well. Sure. So there's a difference between the top echelon um, doctors and, and sort of the average. And, and I think one of the most important ingredients is the way to communicate and connect with patients. So that was one of the major things that I also learned in residency. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you say you, you draw pictures because I, I found myself, you know, when I have to explain like interventional radiology procedures to patients, I'll never forget having to explain a biliary drain to a patient who, I mean, I think it's, you know, for and us, it's a thing we do all the time, but it's yeah. them. They, they, when I first tried to explain it without pictures, they looked at me like I had three heads 
And then, right. you know, and then you learn to, you know, draw out the biliary tree and say, hey, this is the liver. This is, it drains into the, you know, intestines. This is why it's important. If, you know, yep. you'll have bile back up and you draw the actual picture of that happening. And I think doing that, I could see it, you know, you, you can see it when they get it and you can see it when they don't get it. And, right. and, you know, one of the most important parts about doing that is that not only are you helping that patient understand, but you're also um, showing yourself what your deficiencies are. Right, right. Because right? if you really understand something, you should be able to draw, um, you know, a caricature of it or, or something, a diagram of it. But if, mm-hmm. if, if you think that you know the mesenteric anatomy, but you really don't, mm-hmm. and then you try to attempt to explain that to a patient who doesn't understand it, and you try to put your understanding on a piece of paper, that's when it falls apart. That's when you realize, oh, maybe I don't understand the mesenteric anatomy well. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not to say that everybody needs to be Picasso. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about stick figures, but mm-hmm. so, so when I was having these discussions with patients in the trenches, you know, at nine 30 at night, the ER would call me and I would go downstairs and have to communicate with a patient. That's when I would understand that, you know what? I don't understand this anatomy well enough mm-hmm. because I couldn't explain it to a, a patient with, with some basic tools. Right. So right. I would do the best that I could, but then that will be a, a, a important reminder for me to go back and read up on that topic. You know, so I'd mm-hmm. go back to the call room and get on the internet and look up some diagrams of like the brachial plexus, which is very complex and, you know, the spinal cord tracts or whatever, and, and, you know, get a, get a notebook or something out and jot down notes. And, you know, if you keep doing that repetitively, repetitively over years, it just becomes a uh, secondhand. Sure. Sure. No, and I, I can attest. I, I remember rotating with you. I remember you using the whiteboard and, 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 uh, drawing lots of pictures for patients, yeah. especially, and patients' families for that matter too. Um, I think that that's awesome. So I would say, um, I guess when you, when, what advice would you have for like medical students that are maybe interested in neurosurgery They're, but they're still rotating, I guess, what, like, what, what do you think goes into like, I, cause I think it's a really important decision. And I think sometimes it gets, I mean, you really have this one year of like core rotations, maybe a couple electives to really figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. I mean, sure. Maybe you had some, ex- obviously some experiences before that, but I think, I guess, what's your kind of top advice for someone trying to like navigate that pretty big decision that during that third year. So as a, as a, as a medical student, I think the best thing to do is to align yourself with either a, a neurosurgery resident or an attending. Mm-hmm. Now, Keep in mind, you know, personalities may not align. Certain individuals are more difficult than others. But if you search hard enough because you're obviously passionate about this and you're about to make the most important decision of your life, potentially, you will find somebody who is interested enough to invest in you. Sure. Right. Um, and, and so if you find a medical student or, or who's more senior or, or resident, um, you, you really just start picking their brains. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you ask them, you know. Max, tell me, what do you like about taking call in neurosurgery? What is it that intrigues you? Is it just the fact that you are a neurosurgeon that's intriguing? Or do you really like evacuating a subdural hematoma at 1030 at night when you're tired and you'd rather be at home sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's, no, you know, you just got to get down and, and into the trenches and, and, and really experience and go through those emotions. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't, this doesn't happen very often, but at least every year I see one or two students who go in thinking that neurosurgery on paper sounds very rewarding and, 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 and uh, you know, appealing intellectually. But then the second they hit the operating room and they do 
five cases with me, they realize or hang out with me, they realize that, you know, maybe this is not exactly what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Right. So you really have to get connected with an attending or a uh, high level resident and, and, and just shadow them. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't, I can't uh, stress that enough. <clears throat> and uh, you know, don't be shy. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be surprised how many people are actually out there wanting to um, share this information with you as a medical student or wanting to have a shadow, but mm-hmm. they just don't have the opportunity. Right. 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 And on the other side, all medical students think that, you know, if they pick up the phone and they call a neurosurgeon or they send an email to a neurosurgeon that they're quote unquote bothering the neurosurgeon, you're not bothering the neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, throw a Hail Mary pass, send an email <laughs> and, and, uh, and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think the worst is, so, you know, I, I tell students that too, as well. Like it's just, you gotta, you gotta experience it for yourself. And I think that you make a great point there that like, you gotta, things can look good on paper, but you really got to go see, yeah, you know what it's like. It's no, the same absolutely. It's the same thing with IR. I mean, it sounds really cool and innovative, but, you know, are you down for, you know, embolizing a GI bleed at three in the morning? You know, are you, you know, down with, exactly. you know, working a 16 hour day? Cause you know, all these add on cases, it's the same, you know, it maybe isn't quite the level of uh, neurosurgery, but it's still one of the more demanding fields in, in medicine for sure. Yeah. And, you know, again, I mean, you know, not to be, uh, you know, using too many cliches, but you know, people want to go buy a car and they test drive five or six cars. They want to buy a house. They spend three months researching on Zillow and talking to friends and asking about the various school districts and, you know, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal to get a sense of what the markets are now and what the markets will be 10 years down the road. And, uh, you know, they make a decision to become an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgery uh, or a neurosurgeon on a whim like that. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. On, on, a, on, a, on a subway one afternoon, you know, they talk to somebody who tells them that, oh, yeah, you know, being a neurosurgeon is really cool, you know, you know because uh, I saw this uh, procedure or, you know, this, this guy went in, took out a bullet fragment from this guy's brain and that individual did remarkable and they think, oh, that's the career. Well, right. it could be and I hope it is. But like you said, you got to, you know, go experience the, the dark side of neurosurgery, right? Yeah. Go and experience the days when, you know, you're on call for four days in a row, you may have not seen your family, you're fatigued, um, you're getting bombarded with consults that you may think that are, you know, uh, inappropriate, but they may in fact not be inappropriate because on the other side, there are people who are, are asking for direction. They don't know what to do right? sure. and, and see how you would handle being fatigued and, uh, you know, taking 12 phone calls, and uh, being asked to go to the ER three or four times uh, and, and be away from your family. If you mm-hmm. can tolerate that, then, then certainly, obviously speaking from a biased position, I'd say it's one of the most rewarding and, and, and intriguing specialties. And it's going to continue to evolve and advance and it'll always be relevant, right? Because uh, what we know about the brain now, we haven't even touched mm-hmm. uh, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's, it's, we're nowhere near the, uh, <laughs> the max capacity. So there's, there's a lot to still be learned. There's a lot of innovative technology coming in. So this is really a, you know, ripe uh, area to be joining neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. I guess I, going off that, what, what would you say? I, what always fascinates me about neurosurgery is the, the different tools like brain, you know, the brain lab navigation system, you know, different other, what are kind of the hot, you know, new technologies coming out or, or that have come out in the last you know, couple of years that you're, you're using and really excited about? Well, you know, there's, there's, 
various tools, but you know, there's diagnostic tools, obviously, you know, this as a radiologist, I mean, the, the science of radiology and the science of imaging is, is advancing and improving. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the equipments are getting smaller. You know, there's thoughts of you know, portable MRI scanners, which are smaller than the machines that we have now. The resolution always gets better. So, you know, if, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at a seven Tesla MRI scan of a brain. I mean, the details are frightening. I mean, you mm-hmm. see things that, you know, most people have, have never even envisioned they would ever see in a lifetime. Right. Um, so that's always fascinating, right? Um, uh, then there's navigation tools that allows, uh, allows us to be more and more accurate. You know, so 10, 20, 30 years ago, perhaps, if you wanted to do a tumor resection, you would have to make a very large incision, which, which is never wrong, but, you know, a larger incision translates to a length of, uh, an increased length of time in the operating room. It could potentially increase the risk of infection, blood loss, recovery time is lengthened and so forth. But the tools that we have right now allow us to really target lesions very accurately and, uh, and, and be able to do some incredible things, whether it's resecting a tumor or whatever, delivering a drug uh, through small ports. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's going to continue to evolve. Um, neuromodulation techniques, right? You know, how do you uh, use science to actually alter the function of neurons at the you know, microscopic scale? Mm-hmm. You know, can you actually get inside someone's brain with a chip? And whether it's through delivery of chemicals or delivery of uh, signals, alter the way certain neurons communicate with their neighbors, which then would affect your functional outcome, right? So um, that, that's always fascinating and intriguing. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's uh, always talk of stem cell regenerative technology and so forth, which has been going on when I was in, in residency at Fort. One of our attendings was at the forefront of this kind of research uh, using mesenchymal stem cells to, for example, expedite traumatic brain injury, right? mm-hmm. As you know, neuronal injury is, is, is pretty devastating because sure. right? neurons don't tend to regenerate, but, you know, science uh, is showing us that the, the potential hasn't been tapped there, that there is the opportunity to actually grow neurons in a Petri dish and, and, or at least, um, you know, uh, prevent some of the secondary effects that occur after traumatic injury or stroke to, mm-hmm. to lessen the impact sure. of, uh, of whatever, whatever the injury is or the mechanism, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, all this is evolving, you know, therapeutics are evolving, right? So cancer drugs are evolving, you know, patients nowadays come in and they have a cancer drug. They no longer have to, um, for example, go to cancer infusion centers to get the drugs delivered intravenously, they can, uh, they can take a pill, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which then allows you to go to work potentially. Sure, right? sure. Um, so, so it's incredible. I mean, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I'm most excited about is uh, therapeutics that allow you to detect cancer at very early, or excuse me, um, diagnostics that allow you to detect cancers at a very early age by simply doing blood tests, mm-hmm. which is incredible when we think about it. You know, now the way we diagnose patients is they're oftentimes symptomatic, right? So someone has a headache, they get nauseous, they have a seizure, whatever that prompts an MRI scan, which then shows something, or it's an incidental finding, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they fall down, they hit their head. Um, you find out they have a tumor, we get a consult. But imagine having a tool where 
you can just screen a large population of people through a blood test. Right, right. Right, you know, whether it's spectroscopy, Raman spectroscopy, or whatever it is, looking for markers or, you know, uh, mutations in DNA or whatever it is, to then with some fidelity, tell that this group or this subpopulation has some, which sure. then would lead to more advanced testing, right? So, I mean, that that is incredible. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in that, and that has so many applications. You look at the cancer, like you said, and then even neurovascularly, like, you know, if someone has an aneurysm, you know, how many times you hear about, you know, 20 something year old, 30 year old, something right. really healthy, they had a cerebral aneurysm and they died, you know, and that's someone right. that could have, exactly. you know, they could have got a coil through the folks at, you know, neurointerventional, um, or even just had it monitored with imaging, um, depending right. on, you know, the nature of it. Right. And, 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 you know, some of the other arenas that are really exciting is, is the interface between virtual reality and neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. like how are you going to bring some of this incredible technology into the operating room? I mean, you know, just about a month ago, I, I, I trialed this, uh, you know, this headset mm -hmm. that is just incredible. I mean, it's, there's a dizzying amount of information that is delivered right to my goggles. Mm -hmm. um, I can input information from the MRI scan. I can input information from the patient's CAT scan and, and the computer in this headset actually uh, creates a virtual map of the patient's anatomy, um, uh, which is incredible. I mean, the first time I saw it, I, I was blown away. You, you've seen uh, videos of the people who've never had uh, these uh, headsets with these crazy games. And then you see them like climb walls and yeah, yeah. screaming and yelling and you, you, you look at it and you're like, what's going on here, right? Uh, so it was almost like that. It was like surreal. You know, mm -hmm. I put the goggle on and I'm looking at this patient. They have not had an incision or anything like that. And I see a virtual map of their entire spine in incredible detail. It's amazing. Right? So I can, I can deliver drugs or I can formulate a, a surgical plan or corridor. Or I can deliver screws. I can do anything that I want. And, and all the information I need is on, in, in a headset, right? So that's continuing to evolve. Um, and then, you know, with the, uh, uh, with all the fiber optic technology, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before, you know, someone attempts uh, remote brain surgery. I don't think that's as novel because I think they've done that. I think, mm -hmm. you know, uh, certain institutions in Canada have attempted to do certain procedures, um, you know, fiber optically, but, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before, you know, you can uh, refer me a patient in Atlanta and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can sit here in Toledo and through a computer and a complex network of fiber optic cables uh, perform surgery uh, remotely. Right. Right. No, no, that'd be, so, that'd be amazing. And especially for places where maybe they don't, especially in neurosurgery, you know, they don't have access to a neurosurgeon or maybe there's only right. one neurosurgeon and that has to serve a very large, you know, geographical area. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the future is bright. So, uh, you know, I, I, I encourage anyone who's interested in neurosciences or neurosurgery to, um, you know, get up and go shake some hands, meet some neurosurgeons, get in the operating room, see some of the cases and, uh, and, and, and really uh, join us so we can, we can uh, do some cool cases and take advantage of some of these uh, amazing technology that's coming up. That's awesome. I I guess just to kind of close things out, you know, if someone's made that, they've made that commitment, they've decided they want to do neurosurgery, they've started, what's kind of your general advice for the application process? Like how, I guess when I think of the application process, like how best to present yourself to programs, like, you know, both on paper and, you know, when you get to the interview stage. 
So I think the, the, the biggest thing that comes to mind uh, around the application process, you know, time uh, is anxiety, mm-hmm. right? So uh, the American graduates need to remind themselves that the acceptance rate is usually between 88 to 90%. Mm-hmm. So again, you have to remind yourself that the educational system is designed, certainly the medical educational system is designed to train excellent physicians, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, most people have this uh, notion that, you know, somehow there's a trap, right? Uh, that's, that's ready to ruin their life. That's not the case. <laughs> I mean, most medical students, there's, there's dedicated teachers and, and people that really work incredibly hard to put together these curricula so that you and I can go to medical school, get the necessary uh, training that we need, uh, learn the skill set, and then move on to a residency program. Because, I mean, think about it from a societal standpoint, you know, it's just, the population is getting older, right? The country right. needs more physicians. So mm-hmm. to, to put a roadblock and prevent people who are genuinely interested about a specialty to get into that specialty and move on, it just doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as a, as, a, as a society, we're creating a big problem for ourselves. So mm-hmm. uh, the biggest advice I have is relax, calm down, <laughs> uh, and not so much worry about the interview process. Just be yourself. You know, if you are yourself and you truly are dedicated to the field, you most likely have positioned yourself uh, from an early age, connected with a neurosurgeon, you've done appropriate research, you know individuals who have written good letters of recommendation in the field for you. So you're very, very well equipped to uh, uh, get, a, get an excellent uh, neurosurgery spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if you can control the anxiety, then you can really allow yourself to be you. Right. right. So right. then when you go to the interview, um, you know, you have to understand it's it's it's, you know, the people who are interviewing you. And I, I, I was fortunate enough that I sat on some interview um, or, or uh, residency application committees is that, you know, people are generally interested in finding people that they want to work with. They're, mm-hmm. they're in search of their future colleagues. Sure. Right. So this is an opportunity for you to present the best of you. You know, tell them about your rich experiences. Tell them about um, events that have impacted you, share your research, um, talk about your future goals and, and really just let the chips fall where they may. Don't try to be a robot, right? Don't try to portray an image that is not really who you are at your core. Mm-hmm. Right? Don't, don't, don't present this fake image because the people who are interviewing you, um, you know, they're experts at this. They can, they can figure out who's being genuine or not. Right. Right. Um, so there's that side of it. Uh, and then the other side is, is, you know, really put yourself in a position to succeed, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time you're ready to apply for a neurosurgery residency program, you know yourself as an individual, you know, what your strengths are, you know, what your weaknesses are, you know, what your personality is, you know, what your life goals are. Um, so align yourself with programs that have similar characteristics, right? Sure. So, um, I mean, you know, broadly speaking, there are programs out there that are very much research oriented. There's programs out there that are very much clinically oriented. There's programs out there that have this uh, stigma of being very family oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, there's programs that are known to be extremely busy, very demanding, clinically um, uh, demanding programs. So, you know, put, put yourself, give yourself the opportunity and align yourself with programs um, that match who you are sure right so mm-hmm. if you if you are not really interested in doing bench work research and you're not really you know research oriented don't apply to the top 
20 uh, neurosurgical programs in the country that have had the highest research output in the last decade, mm -hmm. right? Because most likely the focus of the interview is going to be, well, how are you going to contribute to our research infrastructure? Mm -hmm. and, and, and to answer that question, you need to have some robust data to back up whatever you're going to say. You can't just say, well, I've done this, I've done that. Because if you open your mouth about a research topic, then they're going to delve into it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, could Absolutely. you please expand on that? Can you tell us about <laughs> your research on, you know, the uh, reverse transcriptase, or can you tell us about your research on glioblastoma, et cetera, et cetera, right? Sure. Um, so, so, you know, one, one of the things that bothers me is, is I, I, you know, I, I see medical students who rotate through our service and, and they ask me, or, or, you know, just in conversations, it comes up and I ask them, uh, well, you know, how many programs are you applying to? And they say, well, I'm applying to 75 programs. And that's not necessary, right? You don't need to apply to 75 programs because chances are that there aren't 75 programs that actually match your, your characteristic, your personality, mm -hmm. right? Your, your, uh, and so, you know, do some research. Again, that's where that early communication, aligning yourself, if you, if you in medical school, align yourself with uh, uh, one or two neurosurgeons. Those neurosurgeons have connections. They're trained at various programs. Mm -hmm. They have co-residents. You know, when I left the neurosurgery residency program, I had an established res uh, relationship with 14 residents mm -hmm. who are now all neurosurgeons. So those 14 neurosurgeons are all over the country. They work at various programs. Some are in private practice. Some are highly academically oriented. Mm -hmm. And so if you and I, for example, were talking about a neurosurgery residency program, I can connect you to any of those 14 people. Right. And I could right. say, well, Max is a great guy. He's, you know, a superb golfer. He's got this business <laughs> acumen. He's an entrepreneur. He's a great clinician. You know, I think you would love this program. Go and, you know, um, for example, talk to this person. Right. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you do that, then you can see that a lot of these uh, senior guys can help you navigate and, and align yourself with these programs that, that are suitable for you rather than just, you know, taking a laundry list of 85 programs and throwing them in your basket and say, well, I'm just going to apply to all these programs randomly. Well, you know, you still may match, but, but you're not, you're not setting yourself up for success. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, going back to not only do you grow clinically in your knowledge, but also you grow, you grow a lot personally as a rep during your residency, especially in a seven year residency program. So right. you want that to be the best, not only professional fit, but hopefully the best personal fit as well. Right. And, and, you know, with, with almost all the specialties in medicine, it's a very tight knit group, right? Mm -hmm. So my decision to go to Henry Ford um, was made two weeks after I started my residency at the medical college of Wisconsin because the chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at the time, Dr. Maiman, had, you know, connections with Henry Ford Hospital. He's the one sure. who actually suggested that I should go and interview at Henry Ford Hospital. He's the one who actually encouraged me to do an externship at Henry Ford Hospital. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. If I had never met Dr. Maiman, mm -hmm. I probably would have never applied to Henry Ford Hospital. Right, right. Right. So this is why I keep, I keep stressing the same uh, point is at your medical school, find a neurosurgeon, you know, and, and the neurosurgeon doesn't necessarily have to be working at your medical school, right? I mean, mm -hmm. chances are wherever you go, like in Atlanta, obviously Emory is a huge institution, but there's probably 50 neurosurgeons in the Atlanta area. Right, right. right? You can get all their names. You can go to the American Board of Neurologic Surgery, get all their names. You can search the neurosurgeon's name by the state 
where they mm -hmm. practice and just call them up. They all have contact information and say, you know, I'm interested in talking to you and getting your perspective about private practice in, in Atlanta. And odds are, you know, one or two of them may ignore you because they're busy or they just don't care. But eventually you're going to find somebody who wants to sit down and, and just chat with you, have coffee. And, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's very, very important to talk to people who are in the field because it's a very small community. I think there's something like five, maybe 6,000 board certified neurosurgeons in all of the United States. Wow. Yeah. Right? No, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a yeah. huge and point, I think, to make it how small it is. <laughs> it's a very small community and, uh, you know, everyone knows everyone is the joke. Yeah. Right? yeah. So if you, if you start talking, you, you quickly find, you know, there are certain attendings and, 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 and some of these senior guys that will, that will know details about programs, um, both good and bad, that as a student, you just would never know anything about. Sure. And so they sure. can, they can help guide you. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's why I'm always thankful to people like Dr. Mayman, Dr. Generali, all these people, because, you know, they really helped me get to where I am, um, by, by being incredible mentors. Mm -hmm. so. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Kevin, you gave us a great, um, outline. I think of how, you know, the, a neurosurgeon practices, the different, what's involved in your day-to-day. -day, and then obviously a lot of detail on the path and how to get there. We ask everybody this, I guess, yeah, I know you're an incredibly busy guy. What, what do you do when you're not doing neurosurgery? What do you do when you're outside the hospital? <laughs> uh, well, lately my, my passion is throwing darts because I oh, okay. started out by throwing a bunch of darts and hitting the tree where the, the, the dartboard is mounted, but I'm, I'm actually getting closer to the center of the dartboard. Oh, nice. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I love to cook. So mm -hmm. any chance that I get to cook, you know, I, I cook with uh, my parents, my wife, family, always around sharing mm -hmm. a you know, good meal with family and friends is awesome. As you know, I like to golf. We still have to get out and golf. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, the weather in Ohio doesn't allow me to golf as often as I want. But, you mm -hmm. know, the, the sunny days that are here and there, I take advantage. Sure, uh, sure. I like to read. You can see behind me, there's, you know, rows and rows of books that keep mm -hmm. me busy. Um, you know, I try to exercise, you know, my weight may not show it. Um, but, uh, I, I try to exercise again, going back to, you know, staying healthy and sharp and, and, and on top of things. And, um, you know, between the number of hours that I work, my wife, family, and, uh, you know, the couple of, uh, hobbies that I told you, I think that consumes essentially all of my time. Nice. Nice. No, I think that's, that's a healthy balance there. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Kevin, it was awesome to have you on the show. Um, I think the listeners will really learn a lot about neurosurgery and kind of things to, to contemplate both whether they're going into neurosurgery or not. And I think it gave the purpose also of this is to really give people an insight into specialties other than their own. Um, so I've certainly yeah. learned more about neurosurgery and uh, I think others listening as well. So thanks again for, for coming on. We'd love to having you on. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Max. I think you're doing a terrific job. I wish uh, I had people like you spreading um, this type of knowledge when I was applying uh, for neurosurgery. I think, I think this is uh, tremendously helpful. I hope uh, the users uh, get a whole lot out of this. And if any of your users uh, or medical students out there want to reach me, you have my contact information. You are welcome to share it with them. They can contact me or, or call me and uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions that they may have. Oh, no, that's great to know. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll put your contact in the, in the show notes for sure. Awesome. Um, all right, then. Well, we'll uh, thank you. We, we appreciate it. All right, buddy. It's good talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour brought to you by DaVinci Academy. 
More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.